Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. One guest today, Tithi Bhattacharya, editor of the collection Social Reproduction Theory, Remapping Class, Recentering Oppression, which was published in October by Pluto Press. Her day job is as a professor of South Asian history at Purdue University in Indiana. In the late 1970s, the economist Heidi Hartman wrote a classic essay on what she called the unhappy marriage of Marxism and feminism. The core of Hartman's critique was that Marxism, and class politics more generally, always ends up on top. As she says in the opening line, the marriage of Marxism and feminism has been like the marriage of husband and wife depicted in English common law. Marxism and feminism are one, and that one is Marxism. Gender, in her view, always ended up subordinated to class in both analysis and program. Hartman proposed instead that the two perspectives become something of a marriage of equals. As she wrote, we argue that a materialist analysis demonstrates that patriarchy is not simply a psychic but also a social and economic structure. We suggest that our society can best be understood once it is recognized that it is organized both in capitalist and in patriarchal ways. Close quote. But are these two spheres operating semi-independently, or are they a complex unity? Over the decades, many socialist feminists have addressed these issues, not always agreeing on an answer. The collection edited by my guest, Tithi Bhattacharya, embodies an approach known as social reproduction theory, one that rejects any separation of worker and society. Society, including the family and other highly gendered relations, produces the worker, and it's a mistake to treat these as isolated systems. The collection consists of ten essays, two of them by the editor. One, an overview of the contributions, the other, an examination of the spheres of production and reproduction, the economic and the social, as mutually creating each other. Other essays include Nancy Fraser on the crisis of care and contemporary capitalism, a situation in which the hunger for profit maximization destroys the social underpinning that makes it all possible. Susan Ferguson on childhood and capitalism. Sarah Saritas Oran on pensions. Salar Mondehesi and Emma Teitelmanon, among other things, the centrality to the politics of the 1930s of social reproduction struggles and Alan Sears on sexualities. Social reproduction theory has a breadth of interest that you don't find in typical books on labor or gender. While some of this may sound abstract, it's not. It's relevant to many hot political issues today, from social security reform to Me Too. It was a subtext to this Hillary Clinton-Bernie Sanders fights of 2016. This interview was recorded a couple of weeks ago, before the final passage of the Republican tax reform bill, so please adjust the verb tenses and moods accordingly. Here's Tithi Bhattacharya. Marxism and uh, class struggle, more generally, are often seen uh, as centering on narrowly economic issues. The workplace, wages, hours, working conditions. You know that famous quote from Lenin that uh, the spontaneous consciousness of the working class is a trade union consciousness. You find these kinds of conceptions really unfair to Marx and are not really helpful to the pursuit of truth and justice generally, right? Absolutely. And actually, this is why I think the most frequently used prefix in my work about Marxism and in the works of social reproduction feminists about Marxism is the prefix re, because we believe, or at least I believe, that um, this is not the central core idea of Marx or Marxism. And this is why we need to revisit Marx and actually reveal um that uh, Marxism is about much more expansive notion of both struggle as well as the expansive nature of capitalist exploitation and, and oppression. And this is where I think social reproduction theory develops the silences in Marx. Marx has a couple of suggestive passages, but he doesn't really develop it uh, very deeply, right? Right. So, I mean, um, you know, 
Grundrisse and then Capital Volume 1, where he develops uh, the ideas of the capitalist mode of production, basically says that um, the capitalist mode of production produces commodities, but at the heart of it uh, is labor power. So it is workers um, and their capacity to labor that is at the source of capitalism's profit. And so the worker um, producing these commodities arrive at the workplace and has to sell her labor power to the boss um, on the basis of which capitalist profit uh, depends. So the uh, longer hours the worker works and so on, the more profit for the bosses. But the problem, um, well, there's no problem with this analysis, but the problem in Capital Volume 1 is that labor appears produced already at the door of the workplace, right? So labor power is assumed analytically in Capital Volume 1 to be simply present. And social reproduction theory urges us to neither assume that labor power is simply there, nor treat its production as devoid of history. So labor power, like other things under capitalism, also has to be produced and reproduced. So this daily and generational renewal of life or labor power is the point of focus for social reproduction theory. It also um, explores the way in which labor power is made available, right? So there's a very um, wonderful argument made by, actually to uh, switch tracks a little bit, by Marcus Radica in his book, The Slave Ship. And he says, you know, the slave is not captured in Africa as a slave. He or she is captured as a human being. He or she has to be made into a slave and that process begins even before he or she lands on the shores of the new world into the plantation. The slave ship is, an, is a production site of torture and enslavement that makes a human being into a slave. So similarly, but not to that kind of a brutal extent, the human beings have to be made into wage laborers their labor and the capacity to work has to be attuned to capital's profit-making uh, mechanisms in a particular way for them to be late wage laborers. So social reproduction theory kind of explores the myriad veins of social relations that produce labor power and makes the worker unworker before she arrives at the doors of the factory at 9 a.m., and the processes that takes place after she leaves the workplace at 5 p.m., except that nowhere in America do people work nine to five anymore. And a lot of the um, the analysis of how workers are produced, people are produced and reproduced uh, has been done by feminist scholars over the last decades. But Heidi, Heidi Hartman called the long unhappy marriage of, of uh, Marxism and feminism. Uh, there have been many approaches to how these things all fit together. There's something called dual systems theory. There's your approach, social reproduction theory. Could you just lay out some of the ways that people have tried to understand how these processes fit together? Before I state my disagreements with dual systems theory, I think we must all acknowledge one of the things that dual systems feminists um, try to bring attention to. In, in general, second wave feminists try to uh, bring attention to the fact that unpaid domestic labor was an absolutely crucial part of capitalist uh, reproduction. 
uh, reproduction of capitalist um, social relations. Where it went, I would say it kind of moved away from Marxist analysis and hence the unhappy uh, marriage is it saw a separate system of patriarchy that reproduced uh, sexual oppression and gender oppression and a, uh, and a capitalist production system that produced commodities. These two were separate, they were connected, but they were two separate systems of oppression and exploitation that borrowed from each other, but were not necessarily the same system. And this is where I think social reproduction theory says, well, actually, Sexual oppression, while distinct from the production of commodities, is actually not a separate system of patriarchy. It is simply a unitary system of capitalist social relations and capitalist production where there are distinct social processes that produce life and distinct social processes that produce commodities, but the two are intrinsically uh, related. So, I mean, if you think about it, the relationship between the production of value or the production of life and the produ uh, production of um, commodities and value and the production of life is not just intrinsically um, connected, but they, the relationship is both necessary and contradictory. It is necessary because, you know, obviously capitalist production needs um, labor power, um, otherwise uh, without which value could not be produced and the system could not be reproduced. And workers who are the bearers of labor power need wages and social services through which they can meet their basic subsistence needs. So in that sense, it is a necessary relationship, but it is also contradictory because the capitalist must, in order to remain competitive, create conditions whereby human needs is subordinated to profit-making or accumulation. So in other words, they must also limit or lower wages and social spending that pay for the renewal of the workforce and hence lower the spending uh, for the renewal of life. One of the contradictions of this, of course, is that Capitalists who make consumer goods are always trying to sell us more stuff, which you know, pushes up workers' uh, demands at the same time. Uh, you know, other capitalists want to keep down those demands. So it, it's a field of conflict uh, even between uh, sectors of the capitalist class. This is a very, very interesting point because this is one of the things that um, I think Marxism is very good at explaining. Uh, remember where he talks about that it is always a question of relative wants. So for instance, you know, in the days when the capitalist lived in a villa and the worker lived in, you know, um, track housing, uh, the worker would have the villa to aspire for. So her needs were um, shaped by the villa. But today, as the capitalist lives in an island and owns all the other islands around it, and the worker lives in a you know, suburban house, their needs are shaped again by the relative inequality between the bosses and the workers. So the fact that capitalists constantly have to sell products to us and workers are, are forced to buy them in order for the bosses to remain competitive also creates needs within the uh, working class, right? So the system itself produces the um, understanding that this life is not enough in a sense. So it, while it produces needs, it also produces the horizon 
for workers' struggles to meet those needs. So workers can only have their needs fulfilled to a certain extent as far as the uh, system allows uh, the working class to satisfy their needs. But some need, in other words, um, analytically speaking, will always continuously remain unfulfilled for the working class. This is why you know, I have always argued that class struggle or the struggle for a better life is actually intrinsically part of the capital labor relationship. Mark says uh, that you know, there's nothing, a couple of paragraphs in, I believe, Capital Volume 1, where he says that you know, the, wor- the wage is not set you know, by some immutable natural need, uh, that the, wor- the wage is determined by what uh, the standards of society are at any given moment, and those standards are shaped by class struggle. So they, even, even the most narrowly economistic sense around the wage, that, you know, this is a product of, of struggle that's actually beyond the workplace, right? Right. And I mean, you know, we've forgotten, I think, in the last 40 years of neoliberalism that we've forgotten why are people going to work? It is not for the wage, but it is in order for the wage to fulfill human needs. So the wage is a means to life. So people forget that what the things that motivate workers to strike even within the workplace is not just for a higher wage, but for a fulfilled life that that higher wage will afford. So in other words, I think it is very foolish for neoliberal bosses to think that once they took away the tools for striking or um, struggling within the workplace, would would be our unions, when they took those away, workers would stop um, struggling. Because when they're quality of life is affected, when their access to social housing is affected, access to water or hospitals is affected, of course workers will struggle. And that that may not be in the workplace, but it will be in working class communities or um, in, in general, in ordinary people uh, on, on the street as a whole. So the question of the wage being separated from life is an absolutely idiotic idea that actually does not exist in Marxism. Um, Marxism, and particularly Lenin, talks all the time about the integrated uh, nature of the workplace and non-workplace struggle. You know, Lenin spent his entire, um, the, the first period of his polemical rage against economistic writing, you know, of in, in Russia, who were basically arguing about this sort of narrow workplace focus and, and so on. And so this is why his famous line, the tribune of the working class must fight for all forms of oppression, not because it's a moral fight, but because every body blow against the system is actually a win for workers in general. I'm speaking with Tithi Bhattacharya, a professor of South Asian history at Purdue and the editor of the collection Social Reproduction Theory from Pluto Press. Ernest Mandel has a passage in uh, Late Capitalism where he writes about the extension of needs under capitalism. Uh, The deepening of of needs uh, is actually a civilizing thing and that there's a kind of liberal snobbery sometimes about uh, workers wanting more stuff. That's kind of um, a reactionary stance, isn't it, To, to say that the workers want too much? I want workers to want everything. I am always horrified when people, um, especially, you know, liberal uh, news channels and uh, liberals in general post horrified pictures of Black Friday riots or whatever, you know, people struggling to get into Walmart, etc. You are blaming 
the people who are at the circus, not blaming the people who have organized the bloody circus. So, I mean, this is one day of the year that a working class family can get consumer goods and so on at decent prices. And so why the hell should they not go and buy them for themselves and their family? This is not a question of greed. If you want to talk about greed, let's talk about the handful of people who control all the wealth of the universe. Um, but what we want to look here is, of course, working class people uh, seek to fulfill their needs. It's not a question of greed at all. And yes, I mean, consumerism is, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that the American worker's uh, need is the same as the Bangladeshi worker and so on. But this kind of relative moralism is actually uh, nonsensical. I think what we need to focus on that most working class people globally do not have what they need to reproduce their life in decent humanitarian and dignified conditions. This is true whether you're working in America or you're working in Bangladesh. And that is a question that is about not because they need more, but because the, a handful of one percenters control most of the wealth of the world and are actually, that's where we should talk about greed. So I am all for workers um, wanting more things to make their lives and the lives of their families and loved ones better. If we go back, you know, this is more of a 19th century thing that is, is fading in the present, but uh, th there, there was a sense in which uh, the workplace is gendered male and the household is gendered female. And uh, these two realms are really rather separate. Where are we now with that? Well, if you look at the American context, right? I mean, the idea that there was a breadwinner and a homemaker only worked if you follow, you know, Stephanie Kutz's work, only perhaps worked for a very, very tiny period of time in the post-Second um, World War era in the American context. And that, too, not for everyone. So, I mean, some of the writing of um, black Marxist uh, women um, in the 30s and 40s is precisely about that the black female worker has always been a worker, has never been just a homemaker. So, I mean, I think that mythology is, um, is it, it does not hold true for the vast portion of capitalist uh, history uh, globally. Where it does hold true is in what you actually said, that the workplace is gendered male and the, uh, the home is gendered female. So here's the problem. The idea that the two things are separate, as you know, is the, that the workplace and the home are two separate spheres emerged under capitalism only, because under previous modes of production, work and home were not separated out so, so discreetly. What has happened um, under capitalism, increasingly so, is, and I've used this phrase before, that the workplace has become degendered because of a very specific set of policies and practices, workers as socioeconomic beings are now required to have neither race nor gender. So this is not obviously gender or race neutral policies, but is actually openly oppressive. So if you think about it, the very notion of a rigid work schedule forms the primary framework of the, of the, of the problem, yeah, in the sense that going into work at a particular hour, leaving work at a particular hour, these are all 
not set to natural biological rhythms or to seasons, etc., but to uh, set to capitalism's needs. And those needs are increasing um, every day. So, for instance, the idea that the supermarkets are open 24-7, um, you know, workplaces are open 24-7 these days, is a ridiculous, um, if you think about it in human terms, it's a ridiculous pressure to put on the human body and the biological clock. I, I went to Target um, yesterday, and the checkout person, who is, by the way, over 70 years old, and she's working there, um, at 9 p.m. At, at night, she tells, I said, so do you have to work here um, on um, Christmas Eve? And she said, yes, till 11 p.m. on Christmas Eve. So the workplace is, in that sense, extremely authoritarian. But attending to personal matters in the workplace, for instance, a phone call about a sick child, is typically discouraged because this is taking away from work time and a majority of people don't have any control of when um, they can take a break during the workday. So um, apparently, according to one study, I remember nearly 60% of working class people, men and women, have no control over their start or end time at work. And uh, near over 50% cannot take time off to care for sick children. So these kind of gender neutral policies at work, so-called gender neutral policies, obviously affect women far more. So in that sense, when you de-gender the workplace, it actually heavily affects how um, women uh, can be part of the workforce in, in a meaningful way. So what ends up happening is because people are forced to spend even longer hours at workplaces away from home, and because wages, particularly after 2008, are so low for a majority that um, a 40-hour work week is not enough to um, feed your family or keep poverty at bay. And there is no childcare support. So what ends up happening is because of these kind of policies in the workplace and because of the fact that women are paid less at, in, in the workplace, um, women often end up um, staying home because it is cheaper for a woman to stay home and take care of the child or the aging parent because childcare is so expensive than for the woman to have a job. But she also has to pay some of the bills so she ends up having part-time work and so on. So in that sense, some of these things still, the, the structural impulses of these highly gendered spheres still exist. But unfortunately, because wages are low for both men and women, what that means is women can no longer afford to even stay at home. So they end up having, you know, three part time jobs, etc., to pay the bills. These are the issues that the bourgeois press renders as problems of work life balance. Correct. And it is entirely untrue because by that very phrase, it implies that the balance ought to be achieved by individuals. McDonald's and Walmart give workshops to workers about savings, how to save, because workers obviously don't know how to save, and Bill Gates does. I, this, the, the putting of the responsibility on the worker to achieve balance in their life, what, presumably by doing more yoga, 
is as a ridiculous neoliberal concept. The balance should be achieved by raising the wages, by lowering the number of hours at work, by providing free um, childcare and healthcare to the worker. And that's how she will achieve balance in her life, not by thinking about balance or, you know, doing self-care or whatever uh, the new buzzword is. And that's the end of part one of my interview with Tithi Bhattacharya, editor of the collection Social Reproduction Theory. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of Surreal Chemist by Stereolab. And now on to part two of my interview with Tithi Bhattacharya, editor of Social Reproduction Theory from Pluto Press. Uh, let's talk some about uh, practical issues that social reproduction theory can help us think about much more clearly. For example, the, the, possibly the peak period of class struggle in the United States was the Great Depression of the 1930s. And a lot of those fights uh, were around issues that were outside the workplace. There were uh, intense issues of class struggle, but they were not conventional union-style issues, not, you know, the, the, the flint sit-down strikes and such. We saw uh, a lot of issues around food and evictions, uh, uh, organization around neighborhoods, um, you know, apartment houses. Um, could you talk about what that tells us about the nature of class struggle in, in American history? Well, uh, the first thing to be said is CIO built its power by actually waging class struggle in the more expansive sense, not just in the workplace, right? I mean, it was precisely because they were there to um, struggle alongside of communities for housing, for rent control, against racism, and so on, that build confidence uh, to build uh, unions in the workplace, right? It was about union power, not just in the workplace, but James Boggs, um, you know, um, has this beautiful uh, essay about his experience, um, uh, about the history of the CIO and his experience in the 1960s. And he says unions um, wanted to build social power, not just power in the workplace. So the CIO's entire uh, strength and radical um 
development was because precisely because of of um, social power. And if we think about that, if you look at uh, um, the United States right now, I mean, it probably has some of the worst labor laws um, in um you know, amongst sort of global north liberal democracies. And if Murphy oil uh, goes through, it's going to be um, absolutely appalling. But, um, and most places, uh, most union con um, contracts basically um, have no, no strike clauses and, and so on. Um, how it, do we reverse this situation has been the main strategic concern of all leftists in the US, right? But the question is, union density is at its lowest right now. So we are not going to talk about an activation, pressing a button to regenerate or rejuvenate the working class on the basis of economic demands in the workplace alone. But we have to talk about the politicization and the radicalization, the capacity of the working class to wage a political struggle addressing the relations of power in society, not just the question of, of, of wage. And I think this cannot be achieved by um, expanding rank and file organizing in the workplace alone, because um, that kind of union power does not exist as yet. So where do we see most of the struggle taking place right now is on the streets for, you know, Black Lives Matter, for justice for Palestine. We are witnessing since, um, you know, uh, early this year, uh, a revival of the feminist movement. These are all instances, I would argue, of class struggle, which um, what we want to talk about right now and we want to think through is creating sort of large social um coalitions acting both inside and work outside of workplaces, establishing bonds of solidarity and trust between uh, labor activists, anti-racist activists, feminist activists, uh, and, and so on. Um, and, and looking at the question of class struggle in this sort of wider social totality. You know, I, I want to hence kind of come down to the question of feminism. Like, what would we say today is a feminist issue? And this is something that really troubles me when liberals talk about feminist issues being more women into um, positions of power within capitalism, right? I mean, that's one track that liberal feminism or lean-in feminism has taken. So the, the feminist issue then is how empowered are you to control the levers of the system? So that's a feminist issue. But for me, and for those of us who do social reproduction theory, universal health care, universal child care, uh, these are fundamentally feminist issues. I mean, if you look at the question of reproductive rights, right? So that is understood by all people as a feminist issue. But liberal feminists say that reproductive rights are about the control of our bodies and ovaries, right? And that's absolutely true. That is the absolute first step. Social reproduction feminists would say, well, actually, what is it about the birth of a child that is most important? Yes, the control over our bodies, the right to have 
a child is also important in, in this country of you know forced sterilization of black and Puerto Rican women. So the right to have a child and the right not to have a child is absolutely fundamentally the first thing about reproductive rights. But the question, if you do decide to have a child, when to have the child, what are the factors that decide that? Those factors would be what kind of wage you have, what kind of health care you have, whether this uh, society has child care for you after your child is born, whether you or the child's other parent are going to be put in prison for, you know, um, crossing the street or trying to sell a loose cigarette. Those are um, those are fundamental issues that determine uh, a decision about childbirth or not to have a child. So it is not about the question of control over our ovaries. It is the question of who works for how long and for whom that are the fundamental preconditions to that kind of narrow notion of reproductive rights. It is no longer possible in this society, which is headed towards environmental disaster and economic disaster, it is no longer possible to limit a feminist agenda to narrowly what are women's issues. The feminist agenda must be a broad coalition of agenda that is against the system as a whole. So it's not about whether we want to be part of the system as a CEO, but to actually question the existence of CEOs that should be the agenda of feminism. Okay, and then with the Me Too business very much in the news, um, what kind of perspective do you think uh, social reproduction could bring to that? To go back to our question of what is a feminist issue, it seems that in issues of class struggle, um, traditional understandings have tried to leave out gender, while in issues of gender struggle, traditional um, understanding has tried to leave out the workplace. If we look at Me Too as, as a moment of you know, sort of gender um, insurgency against horrible exploitative things um, uh, that, that women have faced over the years, it is very clear that this is a wonderful moment. And we, I absolutely support the toppling of heads of um, uh, businesses and, and recording companies and what have you. But the real issue also is what makes the vast majority of women vulnerable in their day-to-day -day lives. It is the fact that they are low-waged. It is the fact that they have no dignity in their workplace. So um, the, the conditions, and this is where, you know, social reproduction says, again, that the processes of life-making and processes of commodity-making are integrated in the sense that the issues of oppression that uh, that um, operate within the domestic sphere are absolutely translate into the work sphere and vice versa. So let's think of a general situation where women are paid equal wages as men and not equal wages of low wage men, that both men and women are paid equal decent wages in the workplace and there is human dignity in the workplace, it would be far more difficult to have this series of unbelievable levels of uh, sexual uh, oppression in the workplace. And if you look at the Me Too um, campaign, I mean, the, the most exploited and oppressed um, of women in the sexual harassment arena are farm workers, are restaurant workers. And while I completely stand with Alyssa Milano and, and then the whole range of Hollywood workers, 
what are we going to do after the day after Harvey Weinstein uh, goes away? Because the structures that produce Harvey Weinstein, that allows Harvey Weinstein to operate the way he did, still exist. So what can we do to make sure that no further Harvey Weinsteins are reproduced? And a hashtag and a call out is alone is not going to ensure that kind of a movement. For that, we need much wider systemic uh, struggles against capitalist exploitation as a whole and the terrible, undemocratic nature of the workplace. I'm speaking with Tethi Bhattacharya, a professor of South Asian history at Purdue and the editor of the collection Social Reproduction Theory from Pluto Press. Another issue, the fight over pensions. Uh, we've seen in the United States over the last sec- several decades, you know, the replacement of the defined benefit pension by the defined contribution pension, a lessening of pension coverage in general. Trump has been running around the last few days asking, how's your 401k doing? Because the stock market's at record highs. Most people don't have 401ks, and even those who do have a trivial amount of stock in them. Dozens of countries around the world have privatized their pension system to varying degrees. It looks like the Republicans, having passed this just about to pass this horrible tax bill, are going to move in on Social Security and Medicare next. How can we think about uh, the pension issue in a social reproduction context? Well, I think social reproduction is all about the pension issue because, you know, unfortunately for capitalism, a child is merely a future worker while an old person is an ex-worker or a past worker, right? So capitalism sees all the benefits that are accorded uh, to these two categories of human lives in those terms of their relationship to work. The New York Times just reported that, first of all, (laughs) the uh, United States has the worst care for uh, people after work. And so the pension system is absolutely devastatingly bad for the vast majority of workers. And so as a result, what ends up happening is people just work longer. And this is not just true for low-wage jobs. It is more true for low-wage jobs, but it is also true for medium-income jobs, for uh, teachers, for professors, et cetera. When I first got my job um, in America, uh, my uh, parents were absolutely shocked to hear that there was no official age of retirement because they both were professors and they retired at age 60, one of them, and the other at 65 and had uh, beautiful um, pensions provided for by the government uh, for the rest of their lives. And they were shocked that I had no retirement age. And so, but the uh, the, uh, the result of this is that um, the New York Times reported that the uh, labor force participation rate for those 75 and older are now rising, and it is likely to be over 10% by 2026. I found that whole statistics absolutely horrifying because every day you see, as I told you about my experience with the target worker, every day in our daily uh, lives, we see more and more people who are over 70 who are working longer and longer hours. Um, But if this becomes instituted as policy, which is what it is going to be, if if this uh, tax bill passes, Congress is calling for, what is it, um, over $1 trillion cuts to 
Medicaid. Now, Medicaid provides health care coverage to over 33 million women and girls. And so, I mean, what that is going to do for senior citizens in, in, in this country is it's absolutely unimaginable. So, you know, I often think of um, the famous lines, you know, we, you, uh, we always think of Marxism as, uh, you know, um, smashing the system, replacing capitalism, etc. But um, at this point of my life, I often think of um, the argument that Walter Benjamin makes that perhaps our job is right now or the job of a working class uprising is to simply put brakes on the system. Because the system is spiraling out of control. This is the early part of the beginnings of industrial capitalism. I mean, I think one of the best social reproduction theory books is Capital Volume 1, but it should be paired with the condition of the working class in England by Engels, where there are no breaks on capitalism and the entire working class family is sucked into the maws of these giant factories in Manchester and Lancashire. And the conditions that that visits, that kind of policies visits upon ordinary people's lives is horrifying. So people are people just die off because there are no breaks upon the system. And I think we are almost at a tipping point with that, with workers' lives globally. But we are also at a tipping point, a much worse tipping point, I would say, from the early uh, dawn of capitalism, because we are at a tipping point with the environment. So... Um, the world is going to burn and our lives along with it unless a, some kind of a break is put on the system. And I guess I can imagine that more than simply um, smashing the system at this point. I think the break needs to be put almost immediately. One of the contributors to your book, Chinzu Arusa, was one of the organizers of the women's strike uh, last March. Uh, she was on the show then to talk about it. You were involved in planning that as well. The whole idea of a women's strike was mocked by some of our workerist comrades uh, as irrelevant and silly. Uh, but um, in, in light of what we've been talking about, what was the, the thinking behind uh, this women's strike? Um, what, what were its aims uh, and how was it different from your conventional conception of a strike? So women's strikes have always been more um, expansive in their targets and aims than traditional walkouts over wages and working conditions. So um, 1975, 90% of Iceland's women um, struck in the, uh, not just in the workplace, but refused to perform unpaid um, domestic work for a day um, to make visible the work of women. Uh, similarly, fall of 2016, uh, Polish women adopted a similar strategy and went on strike. In other words, not just in the workplace, but as women in society uh, and organize a massive uh, women's strike to stop a bill in parliament that would have banned abortions. So all of these braided histories of strikes informed our notions of the international women's strike of March 8th. And, you know, it was an international call that was internationally coordinated by uh, women in 50 different countries. So um, Chinsia and I were lucky and fortunate to be part of the organizing uh, strategy in the U.S., but I want to emphasize that it was very, very international in, um, in nature and scope. So the idea was that women's work is um, invisibilized in many ways both in conception and in policymaking. So first of all, the formal economy is 
not the only place that women work, although a vast number of women work in the formal economy. Women work in the informal economy, and um, the vast amount of women in the global south, for instance, work in the uh, informal economy. So uh, stopping work in the workplace and being registered as having stopped work has different sort of uh, calibrations as well, because the formal economy is calibrated in a certain way and the informal is calibrated in others. But beyond the workplace, there is also women's work. So the idea behind the strike was to visibilize also those invisible, um, tremendous amount of invisible labor that go into producing the life of society. So if women did not do domestic work, if they did not do care work, then society would stop moving and um, labor power wouldn't be produced. And certainly uh, labor power would not be uh, generationally uh, reproduced and biologically reproduced as well. And this includes the work of um, both cis women and trans women, I would like to um, emphasize. So that was the idea behind the women's strike, that uh, to make clear uh, the work that women perform and to strike against the uh, totality of capitalist society rather than just the workplace. And I want to say why um, we thought that um, IWS was, or the International Women's Strike, was the right model for a fight back under neoliberalism. Because, yes, we were not as organizers and national organizers, we were not um, all union organizers and we were not working in workplaces. Although I have to emphasize several unions um, participated in uh, the March 8th strike. In fact, the New York March was led by uh, nurses. But what I want to emphasize is yes, the strike did not begin in the workplace. However, the confidence that women acquired through the process of organizing a national strike. The kind of conversations we began to be having nationally, uh, the several strike committees that were set up in various cities across the United States actually created the confidence for women to have the same approach in the workplace. So as you probably know very well, it did begin outside of the workplace, but as a result, of this kind of activity and conversation and insurgency, three school districts closed down on March 8th of this year. The Alexandria City Public Schools in Virginia, the Prince George's um, Public School in Maryland, and the um, Chapel Hill Carborough School District in North Carolina. Both Virginia and North Carolina are right-to-work states. So um, this sort of clinical and actually unproductive division between workplace struggle and non-workplace struggle was actually proved wrong by the organizing of, of March 8th. Well, and also the uh, union, traditional union-based struggles really confront specific capitals or industrial sectors, but not capital as a whole. What you're talking about really is about confronting capital as a whole, the totality of a system and trying to um, challenge it. Right. I mean, I just listened to um, a, a really interesting podcast from uh, Britain, and they were talking about organizing um, delivery workers in their various workplaces. So these are sort of the gig economy or uh, workers, as they, um, uh, as capitalists like to call them. One of the strike organizers was reporting on the fact that the worker 
was not particularly eager to join the union to begin with because union power was not something in this particular worker's memory from recent times that actually improved working class life conditions. What ended up happening was these various workers were living in particular um, housing estate and the landlords of this housing estate were raising the rent indiscriminately and cutting off um, heat. And so the union which is a much newer union, it's not the most traditional union, uh, the union went into the housing estate and said, I, I don't care if you're in the union or not, we are going to organize a, a rent strike and we're going to do some housing justice work here in order to make sure that your heat is not cut off and you're not exploited by your landlord. It is when they started working on the housing struggle that the and the working class um, families were far more interested in joining this struggle because this was about their immediate living conditions. Uh, and the particular worker that they interviewed, he said, this was a question of whether my baby has heat at night. Of course, I will join this struggle. And so that was an immediate, tangible um, struggle that the uh, worker felt very comfortable joining. And it is because the union had managed to win trust, had managed to build uh, solidarity in their real life struggles that later on the entire um, community decided to join the union in their workplace because they realized that these two issues were connected. I have heard um, Jane McAlevey uh, being interviewed on um, this particular program, Doug, and I think her approach to that she wants to organize the total worker is is a wonderful concept. And you know, certain um, radical unions in in recent times, like the Chicago Teachers Union, has taken up that approach, a social justice unionism, and I think we need to see more of that. We've been listening to an interview with Tithi Bhattacharya editor of Social Reproduction Theory from Pluto Press, and a professor of South Asian history at Purdue. About ten minutes ago, Tithi quoted Walter Benjamin, or Walter Benjamin, for those of you who say Deutschland, as saying that rather than wholesale transformation, our job right now is to put brakes on the system. That feels right, but I was also reminded of Joseph Schumpeter's comment that the mere husbanding of already existing resources, no matter how painstaking, is always characteristic of a declining position. It's hard to put a break on a mighty and dominant system when you have so little power that it's impossible to imagine a serious change of route. Alas, though, that's where we are. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this. Some of this funeral is for the wrong corpse by the Mekons. Till next week, one hopes. Bye. Man. 